Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm here with my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, comedian, filmmaker, scary monster. (laughs) And that's actually a perfect... Uh, appropriate designation, I guess, for this episode, which usually uh, it isn't, but uh, good job being relevant there, Jason. (laughs) Just so you know, it's not that I could, if you really want, I could uh, specify it to each episode, but I thought we were not going in that direction. You can do whatever you want. That's entirely your thing. So I'm not complaining either way. I'm just saying it happens to fit for this episode which is in this season on the films of 1996. It's our episode on the biggest flop of the year, uh, which is also a movie that is a a notorious fiasco in many respects. Uh, The adaptation of H.G. Wells' The Island of Dr. Moreau, directed, mostly directed, by John Frankenheimer after the uh, original director, Richard Stanley, left the production in one of many instances of this movie being extremely troubled uh, before it even made it to theaters where it was a failure. So, yeah, a few things. One, I don't think mostly directed. I think directed because he got Richard Stanley got he didn't leave. He got fired. You know, he was removed from the movie. True. And that was with like after two days of shooting. And I don't think they used any of that footage. So it was a it's a Frankenheimer film. Stanley. They didn't, they rewrote his script. You know, I don't think they might've used obviously the costumes that uh, he and Stan Winston had kind of concocted, but I, I, I think this is a John Frankenheimer movie. So if you love it, you love the Frankenheimer picture. And if not, you don't. That's fair. I mean, I think the, the pre-production stuff that Stanley did is, I mean, had a lot of impact on this movie. You mentioned the costumes and the makeup, all of the design work on the creatures and almost all of the casting, uh, aside from David Thewlis, who is essentially the main character. Um, but the rest of the cast was put together by Richard Stanley. So I think it's a little bit uh, of a Frankensteiner. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Come on, I had to say uh-huh. that. Right. Boom. Also, you know, <laughs> while we get into it, as I'm sure you'll give us in our background here, Josh, yeah, it's not. I I think I think it's considered a bigger bomb than it really was because of what an insane, you know, just kind of one mess up after the next runaway production train wreck this was. Yeah, that's true. And I mean, I looking at the numbers, it's kind of hard to quantify. And I think this has been the case also for some of the other flops that we've discussed. Uh, it did gross forty nine point six million dollars, and then budget wise, though, that's the real thing. Uh, on on like Wikipedia, where it's it's sometimes hard to verify where their numbers come from. Uh, first, it says it says it has a forty million dollar budget, which is, I believe, uh, what Box Office Mojo also has listed. And so, making forty nine point six million on a budget of forty million is not good, but it's not the you know giant failure that it could be. But on the other hand, elsewhere, if you're reading about this movie and it talks about the sort of the runaway production uh, nature of it, as you were just saying, and the fact that, you know, the shoot stretched on from like six weeks to six months and the director changes and the cast changes and all of that. Um, there's another part there again on Wikipedia, which you never know, uh, that says the budget went up to 70 million. And so certainly a $70 million movie that makes 49 million at the box office, that's a pretty big failure. So I think we can say that this is a failure, even if maybe the discrepancy between the budget and the gross is not as huge as it is for some notorious flops. Sure. Uh, the legend enhances the floppiness of the whole thing, I think. And also when Stanley was first planning this, right, this was supposed to be an $8 million genre pick. And then they got Marlon Brando and then it was Val Kilmer, you know, after all these, you know, Bruce Willis, blah, 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 James Wood. So like the, the it kept ballooning even before it went into production. Right. I mean, the, the whole thing. And, and, and I, we should say maybe that uh, background wise, we actually all, uh, I think all three of us, even uh, Dave as well, watched a whole other movie, the documentary Lost Soul, The Doomed Journey of Richard Stanley's The Island of Dr. Moreau, which gives you a lot of detail on all the things that went wrong in the process of putting this movie together. And yeah, that's one of the earliest things where 
It was a small project initially for Richard Stanley, who had made two previous genre movies that were pretty small scale. And that was initially what this was supposed to be. And then it just ballooned into something else. The documentary is better than the movie. (laughs) Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So in addition to the box office failure, it was certainly uh, a notoriously bad critical failure as well. Like you're saying, it was nominated for six Razzies, including Worst Picture, Worst Director, uh, Worst Screenplay, Worst Screen Couple for Marlon Brando and his little uh, diminutive sidekick. Uh, And both Brando and Val Kilmer were nominated for Worst Supporting Actor, and Brando won that. That was the only category in which it won a Razzie. Um, So that certainly is what the reputation has been over the course of this whole movie, or the the sort of uh, the years since it came out. And even as it came out, it already like had this pre-made reputation as a disaster, as a terrible movie. Um, and that's kind of what it came into theaters with. Yeah. I mean, having rewatched it, obviously for this podcast, like how dare you, the Razzies, how dare you put Marlon Brando and Nelson De La Rosa out for best for worst on-screen couple. That's literally the most amusing part of this film is the two of them together. And, you know, wearing the same outfits and just it just is such a Marlon Brando thing to do to just find this. You know, they found the smallest man in the world and he's like, he's in every scene with me from now on. And, you know, he's going to be wearing the same outfits as me. I I think that that Razzie's went a little hard on this. I mean, Striptease won won worst picture of the year. That's a worse movie than this, I think. I've never seen Striptease, actually, but I believe that it's a worse movie than this. And I mean, the thing about the Razzies, and I think we've talked about them uh, a number of times before, especially in these flop episodes, is that they tend to gravitate towards movies that are just like notorious like this and just give them all those nominations because it it brings them attention, whether something is actually the worst or it's just a notable element, like you said, like the Marlon Brando and the his little sidekick there, um, they they put that in there to highlight it. So was this the actual worst movie of 1996? Maybe not, but it is a pretty bad movie. It was, it was however, nominated in, at least uh, in one small place, uh, the Saturn Awards, which is a, a genre like sci-fi and horror award show, did nominate it for best science fiction film and best makeup. And certainly Stan Winston uh, is a legend in the world of of movie makeup and created all of that stuff here. Um, and uh, I wanted to mention too, it's this is a, an adaptation of the novel by H.G. Wells from 1896, uh, which has been previously adapted. Uh, it's in the public domain, so you don't. It, there's a lot of unofficial adaptations. Uh, the official ones, 1932's Island of Lost Souls with Charles Lawton as Dr. Moreau. And in 1977, The Island of Dr. Moreau with uh, Burt Lancaster as Dr. Moreau. And I saw The Island of Lost Souls back in college. I don't remember a ton about it, but it has a pretty decent reputation. And uh, and I haven't seen the other one at all. So I haven't seen either, but the 1932 one is definitely Charles Lauded. Ah, yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, and... And even even Richard Stanley, I think, as like in that documentary, talks about how he loved the book, but also how much he loved uh, Island of Lost Souls. So that's that's just as influential for him. Uh, and so, Jason, you said you you saw this before. Did you see it in the theater? I did see it in the theater. And wow. how? Yeah, that shows you. Uh, really, I didn't have a lot going on for myself in <laughs> 1996. Maybe it was around this time I also saw The Glimmer Man in the theater. Starring Keenan Ivory Waynes and Steven Seagal. So I used to see a lot of movies in the theaters, Josh. Yes, and, and bad movies. Did you like this at the time that you saw it? No, I actually, um, in a way, was dreading rewatching it because of how much I disliked it um, seeing it in the theater. Okay. Yeah, I, ne- I had never seen it before this. Like I said, I saw Island of Lost Souls, and I think it was for a college class. And I think we had also read the H.G. Wells book although I don't remember a ton about either of those things. And I had, I had never seen this. And I mean, but I was certainly aware uh, of its reputation. So, and it was interesting looking for reviews because it's known for being so terrible. But uh, I watching like Siskel and Ebert talk about it, 
Uh, they actually split on it. Siskel gave it a thumbs up and uh, said he was entertained and enjoyed the performances. Uh, but uh, Ebert, Ebert gave it a thumbs down and uh, was more in line with, I think, the, the the typical critical reputation. Although he wasn't, you know, he didn't tear into it as much as, and, and certainly Ebert has the ability to just tear a movie apart, you know, as we've seen with like North in our, uh, in a previous flop episode. Um, but he was pretty gentle, even though he, he gave it a thumbs down. I think it was, uh, he, he still felt uh, slightly entertained by some of the elements of it. And so I was surprised and I actually, I managed to, to find a positive, uh, critical review, which I'll get to, but let's, uh, let's first go through some of the, uh, more, the, the more harsh responses, which is what you kind of expect, uh, on this, uh, Peter Stack in the San Francisco Chronicle said, nothing ever gets very scary in the Island of Dr. Moreau, least of all the creatures. On their trip to animal regression, the beasts commandeer military-type vehicles and take up firearms and firebombs. It doesn't quite compute. When was the last time hyenas drove jeeps and blew away people with machine guns? Answer, when a Hollywood movie needed chaotic action sequences to keep audiences from demanding their money back out of sheer boredom. And the action stuff is another thing. That was something that Ebert seized on. And that was something that struck me too, where especially knowing all the problems, it definitely felt like in the later part of the movie, Frankenheimer was like, you know what we need? More explosions. That'll make up for the incoherence of this movie. Blow everything up. Yeah, but the criticism here is that the hyenas toting guns wasn't believable. That was the suspension of disbelief. But the rest of it was just totally on the level. Like, come on, man. Give me a break. I agree with you that it's not scary. And one thing that could have been done much better um, is showing the regression from, you know, kind of uh, interspecies uh, in between creatures into, you know, just animals, animal instincts. All we saw was with uh, Aisa. Is that her name? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Who, um who regressed between having an accent and not having one in this movie. But uh, <laughs> Much like, I don't know. Uh, many of the actors do. Yeah. Actually, like, yeah, I don't know. I just think like there's a lot of problems with this movie, but if your main thing coming out is like the hyenas shot people, then it's like uh, you really you missed a lot of the movie. <laughs> right. No, I think that's fair. And by the time that they do take up those guns or whatever, they're not like hyenas. It's not trying to say that actual hyenas are shooting guns. They're these human hybrids. They're basically people and people pick up guns and, you know, but I, I definitely felt like he was right about the the use of action to compensate for all the other problems that like, hey, this is a blockbuster movie. We can distract the audience by just having a bunch of explosions. Janet Maslin in The New York Times said, talk about out of control experiments. The film combines the subversive hijinks of Val Kilmer playing a jaded young scientist in full Lizard King mode with those of Marlon Brando. Mr. Brando's performance will be deemed interestingly audacious only by those who found Apocalypse Now too sane. While cast as a brilliant and dangerous pioneer in the field of genetic engineering, Mr. Brando treats this as an opportunity to play the Queen of England for reasons that perhaps only he understands. At certain points, as when Mr. Kilmer delivers an expert nasal Brando imitation, or Mr. Brando takes on the faraway brooding look of an actor not quite remembering his lines, the island of Dr. Moreau verges on inadvertent fun. But the sideshow freakishness of its extras who, for all of Stan Winston's special effects ingenuity, still come off as Planet of the Apes wannabes, is too unpleasant for that. And that was something to me, and I mentioned how Stan Winston is considered a genius. I did not think that the makeup in this movie was good at all. It definitely looked really fake and kind of Halloween costumey. And I know it was super elaborate, but I, I didn't even find that particularly effective. That's fair. I would have liked to have seen some of the other creatures that we saw in Lost Soul like that uh, it looked like a three-headed vulture of some sort or, you know, a, a standing vulture. Um, but I got to take issue with Janet Maslin when she says that uh, Brando looks like he forgot his lines. Joke's on you, Maslin. He never learned them to begin with. <laughs> right. right. Yes, that is the notorious thing. And Siskel and Ebert actually mentioned that Siskel says, and I didn't notice this watching, but Siskel claims that at one point in the movie he could see uh, the earpiece that Brando is wearing so that, you know, where his assistant is feeding him his lines. And I never noticed that. But yes, he was 
notorious for not being willing to learn lines and uh, was being uh, fed those lines in his ear by his assistant. But also a lot of the time just making stuff up, I think, you know. Yeah. Right. And they had mentioned that uh, in that documentary that at one point, like, they're in the middle of a good take and then Brando stops it to yell at the assistant. Like I told you not to act the lines, you know? So, yeah. Uh, and there was another bit I read somewhere. I think maybe it was an interview with David Thewlis who claimed that radio interference would lead Brando to suddenly say like, you know, something from a police scanner, which yeah, sounds, a which sounds a little absurd. One. Right. Exactly. I'm not sure if I believe that, but certainly, uh, you know, he's not, um, he's not really focused on what he's supposed to be doing. Well, if he had just like in the middle of one of his speeches, just said, there's the robbery at Woolworths. Like you wouldn't have been like, that's out of context. You'd have been like, okay, that Dr. Moreau, that's what he, that seems like something you might just say for no reason. Right. So. Yeah. To be fair, he's <laughs> playing a, a character who's meant to be unhinged and crazy. So I suppose in a way that, uh, that fits. So on the slightly positive note, as I said, uh, David Anson in Newsweek, said, Brando's performance is enormous fun, but it's not just a joke. He's hilarious and gently mesmerizing at once. And director John Frankenheimer savvily adjusts the tone of his movie to fit Brando's daft brilliance. This update of H.G. Wells's 100-year-old novel is, until it collapses in the last 30 minutes, giddily entertaining, a tropical horror potboiler with a wry sense of its own absurdity. Let's face it, this is one nutty movie. It's not exactly good, but I sure had a good time. And I think he's maybe giving Frankenheimer a little too much credit for self-awareness there. <laughs> I kind of agree. Like, I I really kind of like, I was like, did I forget this movie completely? Because I kind of liked the first hour until it went like, you know, all Lord of the Flies with the animals and everything. And they started fighting back. I thought this is just so weird and just out there like it's kind of fun i didn't love it obviously but i was like that first hour i was like yeah this isn't bad i could deal with this so yeah i i can't say that i felt the same i mean it's kind of fun to watch just in the train wreck sense but i just found it mostly it's either boring or just or completely incoherent um i wanted more of a train wreck yeah yeah i mean that's fair and i think that happens a lot when you watch these movies that are known for being these like giant disasters that you go in with such huge expectations of like the insanity that you're about to see. And then it, it doesn't live up to it. And, and that's fair. I think for this movie that and to me in a lot of stretches, it's not that it's good or fun. It's just kind of dull. Do we have, I know we, it, we could basically rehash the entire documentary, which we shouldn't necessarily do, but are there any other highlights of the background that you wanted to mention? I mean, the doc, even if you don't see the movie, you should see the documentary because it's so insane. Right. You know? Yeah. I like oh, one thing I liked is when they um, like you said, it went from them being uh, supposed to be on set from six weeks in that rainforesty area to six months. And one thing I liked about it was when in the documentary, when Frankenheimer took over, they interview his assistant director, whose name I don't know. And they, he, they tell him they're where they're filming which is what Cairns, I think it's called. Or yeah, in, yeah, Cairns in Australia. Yeah, so he looks it up on a map of rainfall so he could start planning, you know, how much rainfall there will be. And like, as it gets darker uh, on the map, that means there's more rainfall. And the place where they're shooting is the one purple spot on the map. It's like the one possibly most rainy place they could have picked. And, uh, you know, I thought that was fun. So I don't know. I also didn't think, uh, uh, yeah, I, that's the background. We know the background. It's crazy. All these actors were supposed to be in it. Richard Stanley was going to make it $8 million, $30 million. People are firing each other. People are being banned from the set. You know, it's just a bruise of box taking a 2,500 kilometer limo trip to try to leave the set. You know, it's all it's all just nuts. It is nuts. And that documentary is fun to watch. Uh, I would agree. I would recommend that over uh, over the movie. And I feel like especially if you watch that documentary first, that's another thing. You watch that and you think, oh, my God, what is this insane movie? And then if you go afterwards and watch the movie, it's a little a little bit of a letdown. Um, but, yeah, I think that's the impression that you get or the impression that I got in that movie is that Richard Stanley's version of this, probably if he had been able to realize his vision, would have been more insane and probably at least as bad. Because, I mean, he was a bit of a nut job as well. I mean, that's kind of how he comes off there, I think. 
he's he's crazy, but he at least he had a vision of like you know what this could have been. Frankenheimer basically went in and just was like, let's you know let's make sure we have a piece to show here. So I would have liked to have seen the eight million dollar version. I think the parameters would have probably helped him create something interesting. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you get the impression that as it became this blockbuster, he was a bit in over his head, even though maybe he did or he might not have deserved to be fired the way that he was, but he clearly didn't have a handle on the production. So we will then get into all those thoughts, and I'm sure we'll talk more about the background because it's really inextricably linked with how the movie came out. And we'll take a moment and come back with our general thoughts on the island of Dr. Moreau. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1996, we're talking about the biggest flop of the year, The Island of Dr. Moreau, directed by John Frankenheimer, uh, who took over from original director Richard Stanley, starring Marlon Brando as Dr. Moreau, Val Kilmer as his assistant, I guess we can call him, Montgomery, and David Thewlis, who I hadn't even known was in this movie. And watching it, I was like, oh, wait, he's the actual main character uh, as Edward Douglas, the uh, sort of uh, shipwrecked UN negotiator who ends up stranded on the island where Dr. Moreau is experimenting on animals in order to turn them into animal-human hybrids. And that basic sort of setup of the plot is taken from the novel, but uh, they make a lot of changes here, some of which they made mm, on the fly, in the moment, on set, uh, because in part that the two lead actors were so difficult to work with. So, uh, so Jason, you said you actually kind of liked it this time. I enjoyed it. Yeah. For about the first hour and then first hour and 10 minutes. And then once it became very planet of the apes with the, you know, animals taking over the asylum, it, it got worse. It got lame. It got preachy. It got, you know, it just, just kind of fell apart, which is kind of weird. Cause you think of John Frankenheimer, you think what he does best is the action stuff, you know, but, um, that was the most boring stuff for me in this movie. Yeah, I agree. As I was saying before, like it, it feels like in that last I don't know, half hour or whatever, where there's just all of these ridiculously unmotivated explosions that Frankenheimer decided that was the way to save the movie that, you know, we needed to throw in more big action stuff, even if it's not uh, justified in any way in order to uh, in order to make the the movie like appeal to this wide blockbuster audience that we're aiming at. So it didn't, uh, it definitely didn't work for me either, uh, that part, but I I would say the earlier part of the movie didn't work for me even before that. I just was mostly bored. And I feel like the, the plotting, you know, even if you don't know about all the, the, uh, behind the scenes difficulties, the movie is like incoherent and hard to follow. There was one point, there was like a chase sequence where they're chasing down the, I think he's called the, the hyena swine or something like that. The the animal who has rebelled and who has killed, he killed a rabbit and he's the one who ends up kind of leading the animal revolt. And, and Montgomery uh, says, we got to track him down. And so they're, they're chasing him through the, the jungles of the Island. And the movie just like cuts in the middle of the chase. And I actually had to rewind. And I thought, did I miss something? Did he, did they catch him? How did this end? And it just, it just cuts off. It just goes to the next scene. So, I mean, I feel like it's just, it's a complete mess from the very beginning to me. No, I'm going to disagree. The very beginning had some striking shots of uh, of David Thewlis's character on a raft in the middle of an ocean. And then there was a fight between the two other castaways he was with. And that 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 stuff was pretty good. I could have watched that movie, you know, so, uh, that lifeboat movie or whatnot. Yeah. I mean, so you're saying the first like two or three minutes of the movie was, uh, was good. <laughs> yeah. I, I am going to stick with that, but, uh, let's get Dave, Dave watched it, huh? was this your first time seeing it, Dave? Well, actually Dave I did, did not, watch not it. I did not watch it, but not that I didn't try. Uh, I was plagued with connection issues. I tried three times to watch this movie every time it wouldn't let me. So I did get to watch the documentary though. And I did see it I think maybe in the theater, though, Uh, either in the theater or I rented it soon after it came out on home video. Wow. Yeah. You guys, I I feel like I never had any, you know, interest in like when it came out, it didn't seem like something that I wanted to see. But obviously 
it, it people were drawn to it i guess I did you know. have any memories of it dave no only only the impact it's had you know the the parodies and pop culture and stuff which i'm sure we'll get into later but uh you know that that's really it I, most of the movie itself i barely remembered and like when they would show clips and stuff in the documentary i'd be like like man i know i saw it but i don't remember any of this this is way crazier than i thought it was well josh yes so let me let me go over some positives in the movie okay please go so, for it yeah i mean i mean obviously the scenery is amazing not that that's an, the only reason to go to a movie but it is beautiful rainforest totally uh, at the end of the earth, interesting to look at, you know, scenery. I think, you know, Frankenheimer, we know, moves the camera well. He moved the camera very well in this thing. Um, like I said, Brando and Nelson De La Rosa, like amazing together. So much fun. I know Brando gets shit on, shit on for this, but I didn't think he was he was campy. He fit like the nature of it. He was no more out there than Val Kilmer was, you know, so um Lastly, I just want to say that uh, that sequence where he and Nelson De La Rosa are playing the piano and Nelson De La Rosa's on a miniature grand piano on top of his grand piano. And they're both playing uh, what sounds like memories from Cats to me. I don't know what song it is, but it's probably not that. If the whole movie was like that, I would have been like, yes, please give me this. Well, I think that's part of the problem is that Brando is in a completely different movie. You know, he's giving this insane over the top campy performance. And he insisted on having the Nelson De La Rosa character there with him all the time. And like, yeah, it's funny in a, in a weird campy way, but that's not what the rest of the movie is. And so I I don't think it fits. And you're right. He's, he's no more, uh, is it's no more of a train wreck performance than Kilmer's performance who does sort of the opposite where he like underplays everything where he's barely like speaking at an audible volume half the time. Um, and he's, he's just as terrible. And I suppose I would rather have Brando's ridiculousness over Kilmer's clearly not caring at all and just wanting to leave. Um, but I don't think it, none, none of it fits. And you've got David Thewlis giving like a, you know, he's actually trying and he's, you know, doing his best to hold the movie together and completely failing. You know, I, I don't think any of it, it doesn't fit together. Yeah. <laughs> if anything, David Thewlis's performance seems out of place <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> by being an actual <laughs> performance of some type, you know, uh, needed to be w- weird and wild and, um, I agree with you. Like, you know, there's the sequence where kind of the uh, after that, the animals um, ravage um, and eat Dr. Moreau. And, you know, they kind of go on like these Matrix like underground ecstasy raves and they start doing drugs. They should have totally leaned into that. I wanted to see all these weird animal creatures like in an actual rave like what what like if daft punk was playing or something like that that would have like go all in on this thing yeah they did that. i thought that was funny that 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 one moment there's like you know it's got this kind of basic orchestral score most of the time and then all of a sudden you're in that the underground yeah like a rave or it's also kind of an orgy at one point and we suddenly hear this like industrial rock song like some sort of nine inch nails knockoff or whatever and i did like that 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 was just so ridiculously out of place. Um, but yeah. again, it's so out of place. It's like one random little thing that was kind of funny, but then it doesn't, none of it fits together. Yeah. I think what we're getting is, is that um, this really showcases just what a genius film. The room is <laughs> <laughs> well, cause everything's out of place there and that's yes. why it all works together. Yeah. Well, I mean, weirdly, I think if this if Richard Stanley had been able to make the movie, the movie that he describes in the documentary, it might have been like The Room, where it could have been a terrible train wreck as well and probably would have been. But at least it would have been this like vision that he had. But like you say, Frankenheimer comes in and all he wants to do is just get something in the can that kind of fits together and that he can give to the studio. And so it ends up with these crazy elements stitched together with a bunch of really dull, basic Hollywood blockbuster elements. And that makes it less interesting. Yeah. I I also wonder, like, have you did you see Hardware or, or Dust Devil? The uh, Stanley movie. I've seen Hardware, which I thought was okay. I mean, it was one of those movies, again, that has a huge cult following. And I watched it because of that. And I was like, oh, this is all right. It's just kind of a weird, low-budget horror thing. I haven't, I've not seen Dust Devil. 
So I, I haven't seen him, but I mean, you could, if, you know, looking at the documentary where he's very a captivating character in the documentary, Richard Stanley, and he's showing all of the work that he did and the storyboards and the character designs. Like, I think he would have pulled it off and might not have been beloved, but at least would have earned a cult following like hardware or something like that, where it's, man, this guy really went for something and uh, he accomplished that, whatever it is he went for at an $8 million level. Right. No, I agree. I think that's what I'm saying is that it would have been more like the room where regardless of the quality of it, it would have definitely been like, wow, this guy's crazy personal vision made it to the screen. And now it's not that. And it's less interesting because of it. Do you think uh, had the original cast where instead of David Thulis and Val Kilmer, uh, it was Bruce Willis and James Woods? That might have that might have helped uh, rudder this thing along. I'm trying to come up with something. Ah, here. What, what do you think would have happened if uh, Frankenheimer took over the room? Well, <laughs> that is it would have been question. worse. Yeah. Yeah. Although Frankenheimer is a professional director who's made. I mean, he made the Manchurian Candidate. The dude's done some good movies there. You know, right. Black Sunday, Ronin, Birdman of Alcatraz. He's got a credible line of work behind him. Yeah, I mean, and that's obviously why they brought him in, because he's a professional. And, that, yeah. and he does what he can. Although, again, if you watch the documentary, nobody in the cast particularly liked him either. And they complained about his directorial strategy or style in just a different way. You know, he was... He was there barking orders and, you know, like a drill sergeant trying to keep things on track. And that didn't, you know, endear him to the cast either. But um, yeah, whereas Stanley never communicated, he might have had a vision, but he wasn't able to communicate that to his cast or crew. And but, you know, talking about that documentary, it does seem like Val Kilmer was the biggest asshole out of everyone, doesn't it? Right, right. And going yeah. back to what you said, like, would it have been better if they had had Bruce Willis and James Woods instead of David Thewlis? And Val Kilmer, and maybe, but I think either way, it still would have had Brando. And Brando would have given his Brando performance. And if you had Bruce Willis and James Woods in there trying to be professional, just like David Thewlis is in this movie, it would still be this weird mix that I don't know that it would succeed still. Yeah. And I I mean, uh, I mean, Bruce Willis has had issues on set with directors also. Probably James Wood. I, I haven't looked it up, but I think the real winner in this one is Rob Morrow who took over for Bruce Willis and was able to convince Robert Shea to let him out of his contract two days into it. And he escaped the entire process of this film. Yes, he did. And it's weird in that documentary, they talked to Rob Morrow, but they never mentioned David Thewlis. Not, not only do they not interview him, but they don't even mention his name. And he is literally the star of the movie. And, you know, nothing about why he was brought in or what his response was or how he behaved on set, which I thought was weird. Yeah. I, uh, I like David Thewlis fine. I mean, you know, but I don't, I didn't think he didn't do anything for me in this movie. Like, and maybe it was because he was just trying to like actually keep the straight line here going, but I don't know. He was, it was, he just seemed very complainy. The character was always complaining about something. It's like, chill out, man. You know, you were just rescued from a lifeboat. Why don't you relax for a minute? Oh, yeah. I mean, why would you complain about being held captive on an island full of dangerous human-animal hybrids and possibly experimented on yourself? I mean, that's really nothing to complain about. Okay, sure. There, There's plenty to complain about there, but, you know, I got nothing on top of that. Yeah. <laughs> that's the end no, of my I, Every day is a gift. Yeah. yeah. I know. I, I mean, you're not wrong about <laughs> David Thewlis. And again, I think he's he's not interesting because he's trying to, you know, take this stuff seriously and give a grounded performance as a real character. And that's just not what anyone else in the movie cares about. I mean, even Feruza Balk, who in that documentary, you can tell she was super committed to doing the movie, like, and, and realizing uh, Richard Stanley's vision and, you know, serving it or whatever. She also is kind of like, she's kind of all over the place as well. Yeah, not so good. No. So, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think nobody really comes off well. I don't know. I mean, some of the animal performers, you know, you've got Ron Perlman as the sayer of the law, who seems to specialize in playing these characters covered in heavy makeup. You know, he just, he came off having been on Beauty and the Beast on TV. Like he knows how to give a performance as that kind of character, you know, but other, otherwise, I don't, I don't know if anyone, you, I can't look at this movie and say, oh, you know what, that actor really 
brought something, you know, to the table here beyond well, no, their, their crazy ego, like Brando and Kilmer. Nelson De La Rosa. <laughs> I mean, he, he did bring his, his freaky, uh, I mean, we shouldn't, we shouldn't insult him for, uh, you know, his appearance or whatever. I didn't, like, you did. David, I didn't. That's what he brought to the table. <laughs> Obviously that's why he was hired. I mean, in a way this is like, this is like Todd Browning's freaks or something where they specifically set out to find people who were, you know, physically, uh, you know, unique, let's say, and, and cast them in the movie because of that. And that was why he was there. Um, that makes but, sense though. And like, I liked him as the, you know, the, I, I don't know. That was always amusing to me to see Brando in that bright green frock. And then you cut it, move the camera over and little Nelson's there in the same bright green frock. Like that's genius. <laughs> I, I'm not sure if genius is the word that I would use, but it, it's, it's entertaining. It's, it's something it, it's, it's more amusing than just gunfights and explosions. So I just have a hard time giving any real credit to this movie for anything. I feel like anything that's entertaining about it is sort of like inadvertent and, you know, not on purpose. That's fair. I'm defending it because uh, you're not, but it's not like <laughs> I would, I'm not recommending it as a movie or anything. And also, I mean, you know, the ending where uh, our main character finally gets out and is like, what, what scares me the most is, how much like humanity this, this whole entire situation was. It's like, yeah, you're kind of right, but I don't really need that in my movie <laughs> at this point. So. Yeah. That, that bit at the end where they show like random news footage of like people being violent or whatever, it really feels like Frankenheimer was sitting there in the editing room and was like, you know, I need to make a, put a button on this. Can you get me some stock footage of riots and let's just put that at the end? Like it doesn't work at all. Yeah, I don't I uh I don't think there's really much more to say on this one. If you want to get into ratings, we can. That's fair. Should we rate it out of uh little Dr. Moreau sidekicks or is that <laughs> Yeah, <expensive>? yeah. That's <laughs> fine. Out of uh five Nelson De La Rosas. Sure. I'm gonna give I'm gonna man, I think it's because my expectations were so low. I will give it two and a half Nelson De La Rosas because it exceeded my expectations, which would have been one and a half to two. Yeah, that's very generous. I'm going to go with one and a half. I feel like it mostly met my expectations for how bad it would be, even if it didn't quite meet my expectations for how crazy it would be. So I don't recommend it, but I think we would both recommend the documentary Lost Soul, though, which is uh, which is a fun watch. That gets three and a half Nelson De La Rosas for me. All right. Cool. Uh, so we'll talk more about that, I'm sure, then. Uh, and when we get back into the legacy of the island of Dr. Moreau. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1996, we've been talking about the biggest flop of the year, the island of Dr. Moreau. And we've we've really sort of been talking about the legacy of it throughout here because we've been we've been discussing the documentary uh, Lost Soul about Richard Stanley, who was the original director uh, and is still credited as the co-screenwriter, even though I don't know how much of his screenplay actually made it into the movie. And and this is like a defining moment in Richard Stanley's career. Um, as we we sort of alluded to, he'd made these two small genre movies, uh, Hardware and Dust Devil before this, and this was his big shot at Hollywood. And of course he flamed out in such a spectacular way that he didn't make another narrative feature film until 2019 when he made uh, Color Out of Space starring Nicolas Cage. So uh, really this is like, his life is like defined around this movie. Yeah, they they, they raked him over the coals pretty well here. He did, uh... You know, he did have the the Mother Toads uh, segment in the anthology of whatever, you know, horror anthology film that was in 2011. And then he did a documentary, The Other World, in 2013. But I think Color Out of Time was his big comeback, huh? Yeah, that's that's been a comeback. I mean, that movie was well reviewed. It's a it's another literary adaptation. It's an H.P. Lovecraft story. 
that he adapted with Nicolas Cage. And it's funny to me that I, as far as I know, the production went fine, but that after his experiences with Val Kilmer and Marlon Brando, he would decide for his big comeback to work with someone like Nicolas Cage, who is also notorious for being crazy and, you know, just doing whatever he wants on set, regardless of what the director says. But um, I haven't seen it. I definitely really want to. It's on my list, but I haven't gotten to it yet. Have you seen uh, Color Out of Space, Jason? Oh, I just Color Out of Space. I haven't, but Dave saw it, right? Yeah, I saw it in the theater. I, I thought it was pretty great. It was it was fun, really over the top and crazy. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess that's that's kind of his his deal. Yeah. And, uh, he's obviously Richard Stanley a bit nuts. I mean, we didn't mention it in the documentary, but he has a whole. Uh, you know, deal where he talks about his friend who's like a, a, a shaman who uh, casts spells that at first are, are positive spells for him to get the job and to get along with Marlon Brando. And then the spells go wrong. And that's what causes all the chaos on set. I mean, the guy is obviously not like grounded. I don't know. Uh, coherent, maybe. He's in his own world, but I think he got railroaded on this one. And I'm glad. I mean, you know, he, they even said in the documentary that like it affected him so much that he said that he wasn't sure he ever wanted to make another movie. So I'm glad he's back and uh, hopefully has uh, moved past all of this. Yeah, it seems like he has. I mean, in the documentary, which was made in 2014, they leave off where he hasn't made a movie yet. And now with Color Out of Space, uh, he does seem like he's back on track. It, it got a lot of great reviews. And I think he has said that he wants to create like a series of movies based on Lovecraft stories. So hopefully he'll get to do that. Yeah, he's clearly, a, I mean, as crazy as uh, we're saying he is, he's very smart, very well read, has a seemingly a a, dirt, uh, a wide range of knowledge in many different areas. Did you guys get the feeling during the documentary that he uh, recognizes how crazy he sounds and is just playing into it a little bit possibly? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's possible, especially when he's talking about the magic spells and stuff. But uh, on the yeah. other hand, I, I, you know, I think he does, you know, he's not just putting on an act. He's, yeah. he's, he's genuine in a lot of his craziness. I he's think. got, he's got one of the, one great line in that documentary where he's talking about the mistakes leading up to the film. And he goes, and then I made another fatal mistake. I met Val Kilmer. Yes. <laughs> well, right. I mean, and a, a big, a big other legacy of this movie is it not only did it, it destroy Richard Stanley's career for a long time, but it definitely had an impact on Kilmer and Brando, you know, who already both had reputations as being these really difficult people. And I'm sure, I mean, Kilmer remained a big star uh, for a while, but I'm, I'm sure it didn't help him having this reputation of being, you know, impossible to work with on this movie. And not only Stanley, you could, you could dismiss Stanley as being like, well, he didn't know what he was doing, but John Frankenheimer also hated working with Val Kilmer and, you know, right. he's a respected Hollywood guy. So I, I think this movie pushed Kilmer further into that position of being sort of the crazy guy. And if you see him recently, if any, uh, Dave, did you see the snowman with, uh, with Michael Fassbender? I wanted Kilmer? to, I, I heard it's just such a train wreck. It is. I mean, that is a that movie overall is a massive train wreck. And and Val Kilmer in The Snowman is sort of akin to Marlon Brando in The Island of Dr. Moreau. <laughs> it's too bad, man, because, you know, and it's too bad he's such an asshole because he did. He made some good movies, you know, the same. Yeah. That was a good movie. I guess. Was it <laughs> Top Gun? A That's pick. a good movie. <laughs> I mean, I'm not a big fan of Top Gun, but it's certainly a very successful movie. And and Val Kilmer is is good in it. I mean, I feel like even if movies aren't great, like I don't think of him as a bad actor per se. But lately, I mean, you could think of him as a bad actor. Yeah, that's true. But I mean, he did a lot of movies where he wasn't bad. I mean, he is bad in this movie, though. Like I said, he he feels like he's just you know barely able to speak his lines and and can't wait until he he's able to leave, which I think was exactly what was happening. Yeah. Dave had alluded to the um, the legacy point of the um, of the mini me, right? Where yes. you know, where uh, we we keep talking about Brando and De La Rosa, and then we saw, you know, Austin Powers in Mini Me and the character in South Park, who's Doctor Moreau and his Mini Me. So that's that's a fun legacy point. Yeah, it is absolutely. I remember like because that that South Park character 
is in like a lot of episodes. Like he's oh, yeah. like an, a big character on South Park. And I, I remember seeing that, you know, obviously way before I had seen this movie because I never saw it until recently. And so that, that was my main sort of vision of that character was Dr. Mephisto on South Park and his little sidekick. It's pretty accurate, dis, uh, you know, depiction of it, I'd say. It really is. Yes. Yes. You, you maybe watch that on South Park and you think, nah, this is, this is a parody, but it's, it's, it's pretty spot on. And, and Brando too, you know, he already had this, this crazy reputation and, uh, he only, he only made three, three more movies, uh, after this, uh, before he passed away, uh, none of which I've seen, but all of which, uh, I think he had, a, he got a further reputation for being nuts on, uh, he was in the brave, the Johnny Depp movie that Johnny Depp directed, which is another notoriously terrible movie, uh, a movie called Free Money that's a comedy that I wasn't really familiar with. And then the last thing he did was The Score with Robert De Niro and Edward Norton, which I think has a decent reputation, but there's all sorts of stories about his behavior on the set of that, that he hated the director, Frank Oz, so much that he wasn't willing to even have him on set. And I think Frank Oz had to like use a walkie talkie and talk to like De Niro so that De Niro could deliver the direction to Brando because the Oz wasn't allowed to be on the set. So that's so uh, awful. Like why, why would you do that? The score is good. I remember he, cause you know, Frank Oz is a famous Muppet voice. He would always call Frank Oz Miss Piggy. And it's like, uh, you wonder like, you know, this guy who's such a legendary actor who changed, literally changed the way that film acting is done. Why did you have to be such a big asshole to everyone? I mean, he, I don't think that was always his reputation until maybe the apocalypse now saga started. Yeah. I don't know. I was, I was kind of skimming through some stuff on Wikipedia about Marlon Brando's career. And it mentions all the way going back to uh, mutiny on the bounty in 1962, that he started having this reputation as being difficult to work with on set. So may, I think it got much worse over time. Um, especially as he, you know, became this sort of legendary figure and, uh, people would just basically do anything to work with him and accommodate whatever he wanted. But it, it seems like he maybe had this asshole tendency, even from a early part of his career. And then I guess we should, you know, as we mentioned, John Frankenheimer is certainly a, uh, you know, had, had a, had a long and, uh, solid career and this movie, is not a highlight of his career, but he did go on to do some more stuff. He also, uh, you know, passed away not long after this movie uh, was released. But you mentioned Ronin, which is one of his most highly regarded movies that he made a couple years after this, which I haven't seen, but uh, I know people love. Have you seen that one, Jason? I, I didn't, but it does have one of the most beloved car chases in cinema history. Yes, that it does, uh, with Robert De Niro as the star of that. And, uh, and Frankenheimer also made, a, a, I think, three like historical dramas for HBO that were like uh, among the last things that he worked on that are also pretty well regarded. Uh, and then, of course, Reindeer Games with Ben Affleck, which is uh, less so, I think. Yeah. So have you seen Reindeer Games, Jason? I feel like I did. That's what Charlie's Theron also, right? Yes. Yeah. I haven't I seen feel like, I feel like I did, but I don't have any recollection of it yeah. really. And then the last legacy thing I wanted to mention just randomly is that uh, David Thewlis in the Harry Potter movies uh, plays a werewolf. So he, <laughs> he got to, he got to transform into an animal after all. <laughs> can, can we just say in the documentary, they make that awesome point that, um, that Richard Stanley snuck back on set as one of the extras in the makeup and yes. like uh, was basically if he got caught would have possibly given up his entire director's fee for going back to the set, but he was willing to do it. And he's like, I had transformed from the leader and creator to one of the animals themselves. And it's like, bravo, sir. Bravo. You crazy, crazy <laughs> bastard. I actually think that would make a great movie. That would make that a, would be a really good movie. Yes. Yeah, Charlie Kaufman should write that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and I think that that's one of the things that like you you hear about that and you think, oh, that can't possibly be true. Like that's just got to be an urban legend. There's no way that that really happened. And then Stanley is like, yep, there it is. And in the documentary, they even show a clip and they zoom in on there he is in the background of the actual movie dressed <laughs> as this dog man or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, hey, we. Uh, it's it's not the worst flop we've covered in our four seasons, but uh, it's a flop. 
It's a flop. Yeah, it's probably not worse than uh, I Know Who Killed Me. That's You think that is that the worst one that we've covered? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Again, I would say watch the documentary. The documentary is fun, but you probably don't need to watch the movie afterwards, really. No, you don't. I mean, yeah. I think when, you know, we're recording this now in our quarantine lives, when uh, when this comes out and uh, and I listen to it, I'm going to be like, really? I gave it two and a half. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I was shocked at that as well. Uh, but, you know, stand by your opinion. Why not? That, yes, exactly. So uh, that is The Island of Dr. Moreau. And that's this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can follow us on social media. I am Jason Harris Comedy on Facebook and Instagram. Jay Harris Comedy on Twitter. The website is quarantined. Go for Jason.com. <laughs> Uh, we are Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. We love all the feedback. Thank you for it. And uh, and AwesomeMovieYear.com. I am at JoshBellHatesEverything.com. Josh Bell hates everything on Facebook and Signal Bleed on Twitter. And I agree. It's it's always fun to get the feedback, uh, even the uh, good-natured uh, ribbing that we get from some people. Did you get a good uh, ribbing? Tell us about yeah, a ribbing you, know, you got. I know that's a, that's a that's a slightly old fashioned word, but yeah, it's it's always fun to to hear what people have to say, and especially about movies that they think we should be talking about that we uh, refuse to talk about. So, um, <laughs> but speaking of a movie that we will talk about, Jason, what is our next episode? Well, before that, let's let Dave plug his pot. Oh, of his, course. His I've, my apologies, Dave. Oh, I thought it would never come. Uh, yeah, you can check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to this great podcast and uh, follow us on social media at PiecingPod and on um, PiecingPod.com. Cool. Next time, Josh. Yes. We are doing a much better movie. A much better movie. (laughs) It is the Palme d'Or winner of Cannes Film Festival 1996, Mike Lee's Secrets and Lies. So tune in next time for Secrets and Lies. Thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. And all points west.